Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I grew up in New York City, and I knew from the beginning of my life that I hated living in cities. I always felt like somehow I'd just been born in the wrong place. This is Eva Gumprecht. Growing up, her neighborhood was a mix of Jewish refugees, Hispanic people. She loved hearing different languages, but she hated the lack of nature, the overstimulation. After college, she moved out to Western Mass, then ended up in Boston, became a clinical social worker. And then just couldn't take it anymore. So about 11 years ago, um, I moved to Vermont. Eva moved to Adamant, which is close to Montpelier. And she had kind of a strange experience early on. I remember one day we were having a satellite dish installed. And two young men showed up to install it. And they were black and probably been here for about six months then. And I suddenly realized just I really hadn't seen anyone black in in those six months. And there was just this sense of something missing, something artificial about that. I don't think it's a stretch to say that depending on where in Vermont you live, it's possible that you also haven't seen a person of color in a couple months. Think about it. Have you? It's a beautiful state, but never has a black person said, hey, I got time off this weekend. Anybody want to go to Vermont? That was Keenan Thompson on Saturday Night Live last year. And you probably know this isn't just a popular joke or misconception. As of the 2010 census, this state was 95.3% white, one of the whitest states in the country. And what Eva Gumprecht wanted to know was, why? Why is Vermont so overwhelmingly white? And how does that affect all of us? Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy, flying solo as your brave host. If you're looking for Alex Keefe, you can find him at WBEZ in Chicago. Al, if you're listening, hi. Every month on this show, we take on a question about Vermont, our region, or its people. These are questions that have been submitted and voted on by you, our audience, because we want to make VPR's reporting more inclusive and transparent. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund. Welcome. 
So for this episode, I worked with VPR's Rebecca Sananas. Hey, Rebecca. Hey. And we kind of tried to come at this question from two directions. I talked to some sociologists and researchers about some of the historical forces that have shaped Vermont's whiteness. Yeah, and I interviewed a bunch of people of color living here in Vermont about what it's like to live here. Some of them grew up here. Some of them moved here as adults. We talked about some of the challenges they face living in such a white state. So sort of a present-day personal angle to balance out your historical angle. Right. And we're going to blend those two parts together throughout this episode to keep things interesting. But before all that, two quick disclaimers. First, one of the most visible sources of diversity in Vermont is our state's refugee population, which is mostly in and around Burlington. But given that refugees don't exactly come to Vermont by choice, we're going to focus on other demographics in this episode. Second, it should be noted that any and all white Vermonters were preceded by the original Vermonters, before Vermont was Vermont. I'm talking here about the Native Americans. We actually devoted an entire episode to the Abenaki Native Americans a few months back, so give it a listen if you missed it. We kick things off with Sharana Henderson. I've never been in an area that was so white. (laughs) I've never been somewhere where I was constantly stared at and pointed at and where my boundaries were definitely tested. I'm Sharana Henderson. I'm a native New Yorker from Queens, exactly. Well, Jamaica, Queens. So in the spring of 2009, I moved here with my son's father. Um, He's originally from White River Junction. And I was pregnant, and we were going over names, and my son's name is Hayden, but we had a few names. We had Micah, we had Malcolm, which was my favorite, and um, Darrell. But I brought it up to someone that one of the names I really wanted to name him was Malcolm. The look on their face was almost like just pure disappointment, and they had probably known me for like a day. They said, well, that name is going to be really hard for him because it's going to disable him in the future. As a person of color, you should stick with something easy like Sean or John. And that really hurt me because my name is Sharana. (laughs) I'm not Sarah. I'm not Jane. You know, my name is Sharana. So it kind of did some self-reflecting on me to realize, to me, that was just flat out racist. Everyone is completely baffled about why I live here. I've had one friend, just one, come to visit me from New York. And my mother comes up often, but she doesn't like to because she feels extremely isolated. It's hard for her to see my son grow up with just surrounded by children who are not like him. And he can identify partially to them, but not completely. In terms of immediacy, right, there isn't an established community of color here in Vermont, and there's a historic reason for that, right? This is C. Winter Hahn. He's an associate professor of sociology at Middlebury College. Clearly, there were many places that at one time in history were not very diverse, like Chicago or New York or Philadelphia. There really was a time when those cities were um, almost uniformly white. And yet over time, for different reasons for different groups, they became much more diverse. Professor Hahn says these transformations weren't arbitrary. There is this pattern of migration that that most places where people go, they go because there's already an established connection between the place that that is uh, sending migrants and place that is receiving them. 
one of the theories of immigration is a push and a pull. And the pull, there was no pull to Vermont. Sam McReynolds is a professor of sociology and the chair of the Department of Society, Culture, and Language at the University of New England in Maine. He says that if you take the long view of Vermont's history, there were a couple big things that kept a particular demographic, African-Americans, from getting established around here. There were no jobs. There was no African-American history, uh, heritage, culture to attract African-Americans to come to the state to settle. It's a point of pride for Vermonters that we were the first state to abolish slavery in 1777. And that's a good thing. But McReynolds says that since Vermont didn't have any big cotton plantations, for example, there was never like a baseline population of African-Americans in the state. My view is that not just for Vermont, but for northern New England, for New Hampshire and Maine as well, that the situation was structured in a way that without large-scale farming, without large-scale industry, without having had a slave population to deal with large-scale farming, there simply was wasn't a foundation or a base for drawing people in. After the Civil War, former slaves couldn't afford to travel all the way to Vermont to buy land. Of course, there were exceptions to this rule, like Alec and Sally Turner, who settled in Grafton in 1873. See, we didn't just come from nothing and nowhere. We've got a background, and the background be traced right down to the root. This is one of their children, Daisy Turner. The Vermont Folklife Center has an incredible stash of interviews that she recorded with the folklorist Jane Beck in 1983. Daisy was born in 1883 and grew up on the 100-acre farm that her father named Journey's End. All the people that did know him, ever know him, liked him, loved him, and they all knew that he was unusual and that he was smart. But I think he got... A part of his strength and smartness from God. But for the most part, when African Americans came north, they went to work in cities, in industrial jobs. And even when Vermont's industries got going, with mills and quarries, black folks were not in the labor pool. What filled the mills when they opened, uh, the low-wage labor, came from the Irish and the French Canadians. And uh, it was much easier for French Canadians to come across the border from Canada than for uh, an African-American to make his way or her way to Vermont. Italians were also in the mix, and Poles, and Swedes. They came to Proctor and Barrie to work in the marble and granite industries. Sam McReynolds says the presence of immigrants in Vermont working these kinds of jobs was one of the reasons that so few Black people came here during the Great Migration. This was when six million African Americans moved up out of the South, starting around World War I. So this migration is just phenomenal in in number and scale and diversity and range of places. And it went to, it went everywhere but Vermont. So we've heard about some of the big whiteness factors in the 19th and 20th century. But what about today? In a lot of ways, it's still about the economy. Professor Hahn from Middlebury says other historically white states are now diversifying because they're developing new industries that attract new kinds of people. He uses Iowa as an example. What we're seeing in Iowa is that we're seeing a lot of the meatpacking industry that used to be in the Chicago area and other sort of metropolitan areas. And those types of industry tend to draw... um, Not only do they draw Latino laborers, but they also actively recruit Latino labor. But in Vermont... 
even though Vermont is a very rural state and we have farms here, we don't have that type of large factory farms. It would not be as cost-effective for Vermont farms to recruit Latino labor. Some Vermont farms do have workers from Latin America, mostly Mexico, but since a lot of those workers are undocumented, they're limited in how much they can participate in their communities. And in any case, Professor Hahn says the kind of ideal of Vermont farming is not factory size. So if Vermont pushes sort of this idea of small-scale artisan farming, and that sort of reflects Vermont values, right, then that limits the type of people who can sort of come here and work in those types of places. The same goes for other industries. When Vermont focuses on local, small businesses... Again, then that limits who can and can't come here, right? Because those small employers tend to be sort of proprietary shop owners who may employ one or two people, as opposed to sort of large-scale employers that may have an easier time recruiting a more diverse workforce. Now, these things are incredibly complicated, right? Because, and I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, is it really sort of all that great if we're having people recruiting a diverse workforce only because they can be exploited, right? That's not really a good thing either. And Professor Hahn says this is where Vermont's economy and our progressive politics start to create kind of an awkward dynamic. It's a very, very, I guess, um, emotional issue for a lot of people in the sense that we're in this situation because in, in a lot of ways we have these very progressive values about sort of economic fairness and about sort of social justice issues. And unfortunately, those aren't the things that move uh, big populations of people. So Vermont has this homogenous workforce, and that means homogenous communities. And for people like Wayne Miller, that also means parts of the state can feel like dangerous territory. It's uh, almost a cliche at this point. It's it's kind of like pop culture fodder to, to think about how a more elite white person would react when driving through a urban or city or, to use the often used term, ghetto community, at night. What is that experience like? Just put yourself there for a moment and think, okay, I'm locking my doors. I'm still in the car, but I'm not feeling safe. And why is that person looking at me? They're walking too close to my car. Why are they coming up to me? They're knocking on my window. And your adrenaline starts going and your heart starts pumping. And take it a step further and imagine that your car broke down. Your cell phone is dead. What are you going to do? My experience in Vermont is a lot like that. My name is Wayne Miller. I'm 29 years old. I am a resident of White River Junction. I am a student, a father, a person in recovery, and currently serving as the center manager for the Hope for New Hampshire Recovery Center um, down in Claremont. I'm, I'm generalizing here to paint the picture because I have to. That fear that one might have when their car breaks down in Hartford, Connecticut, or some other similarly predominantly black or Hispanic community, that fear that you have, that's the fear that I have when I'm driving through some of the more rural parts of our state. And there's no cell phone service, and it's night, and I'm passing by these houses in, in these rural towns with um, you know bonfires happening or makeshift garages in the front yard and stacks of tires and beer cans and and my heart starts pumping 
and the thoughts of all the things that could happen to me that have happened to other people start going through my mind. I've learned to suppress that. You know, I, I live my life and I, and I do my job and I go to school and I raise my child and all the rest of it, but that fear is still there. So if we have the beginnings of an answer to Eva's question, it's that A, there have been some large-scale economic forces that have made it difficult for Vermont to attract people of color in any big way. And B, it's really hard to live in Vermont and be not white. But at the same time, though, right, these are very sort of simple answers because if we sort of say, well, there are no people of color in Vermont because there's nothing here for them, we have to wonder, well, how come there's white people here? Right. I mean, because the same forces that would have driven people to to migrate to a certain place should have also motivated other people to do so as well. And I am so glad that Professor Han asked this question because it takes us from the basics and brings us to like a whole other level of contemplating Vermont's whiteness, how it defines itself and perpetuates itself. The person who's going to help us unpack this is Robert Vanderbeck. Right after this. Hello? Hello, this is Angela. Is this Robert? Yes, hi. Let me turn my volume up. So in 2006, Robert Vanderbeck wrote a totally fascinating paper called Vermont and the Imaginative Geographies of American Whiteness. He works at the School of Geography at the University of Leeds in England. But for this research, he spent time at the University of Vermont. In terms of addressing this question about Vermont whiteness, one of the things to keep in mind is that this idea of of whiteness is very much kind of a social and cultural construction. In his paper, Robert talks about a kind of perceived whiteness in Vermont, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yankee whiteness. It's not just a skin color, but a set of connotations. Ideas of kind of a people who are kind of taciturn, people who are thrifty, people who are hardworking, people who have this particular attachment to ideas of, of liberty and democracy and these kinds of things. Robert says that compared to the Southern white associated with Jim Crow laws and overt racism, the Yankee was considered pretty tame. But in his research, he found a different story. You know, people of Irish descent, people of Italian descent, of, of Greek descent would not have necessarily been kind of embraced within this category of whiteness. Remember, these were the immigrants who worked in Vermont's mills and quarries. In 1937, an academic named Ellen Anderson did some ethnographic research in Burlington. She was trying to suss out what she called social cleavages. She has this great passage from her book in 1937 where she writes about kind of Yankee perceptions of the city of Burlington. And so this is what she wrote. She said, um... Walking down the streets of Burlington, the visitor sees nothing in the appearance of the citizens to give any impression of cleavages in the community, of barriers separating group from group. On a Saturday night, for example, with stores open until nine or half past, the citizens of Burlington, the farmers from the country, and visitors from nearby towns all mingle together. In this moment of common activity, they all bear the stamp of Americans. But to a Yankee farmer, they are not all alike. To him, Burlington has a lot of foreigners. As he walks along the main street, he looks in vain for a few faces which remind him of the features of Calvin Coolidge. In a way, 
this dynamic still exists in Vermont. I have to say, for me, being Jewish and coming here was difficult. This is our question asker, Eva Gumprecht, again. And this was her experience when she moved here in 2005. You know, the first year I would be talking with people and I would find they weren't looking at my face. And I couldn't figure out for a long time where they were looking. They were looking at my hands. Because I talk with my hands. People, Yankees, don't do that. And I was used to a certain speed of conversation and a certain passion of conversation, which for most of Vermont, I think, is considered over the top. And so I would find myself sort of dialing myself back and really trying to fit in. When I was interviewing C. Winter Hahn of Middlebury College, he told me this little anecdote. I met somebody and, um, you know, he, he sort of said, um, either you're a professor or a doctor. And I said, well, how, how, you know, how do you know? And he sort of said, well, you're an Asian person in Middlebury, so clearly you're a doctor or a professor. That's the only Asian people who come here. And then there are stories like Olivia Lapierre's. I'm a college student at Linden State. I live in the Upper Valley, um, but I grew up in the Northeast Kingdom, and I'm originally from Mekele, Ethiopia. I came to the Northeast Kingdom in 2000 from Ethiopia, and I was leaving Ethiopia because of the Ethiopian-Eritrean War. I was adopted by an American family uh, who lived in Orleans, Vermont. Some of my earliest memories of coming to Vermont were just feeling very different. I grew up in a predominantly white community, and the only other black people that I knew in my community were also adopted. And so as a child, I just remember feeling that the only life that existed for black people is adoption or foster care. And I had never met a black person who knew their biological families. So a moment where I really felt that I was different than everybody else was when I was in first grade, my teacher had asked me to give a presentation on Ethiopia and talking about some of my reasons for coming to America. And when I gave the presentation to my class, I could see that their idea of where I came from was a reflection of of my entire community's idea of where I came from, um, that I came from a poor country, and I had fit their stereotypes. I was a very skinny child, and I did come from a poor region, um, and I came uh, because of war and conflict, um, and my English then wasn't that great. And that was the first time I was truly like, wow, I'm very different. I've had very different experiences um, than my peers and also for my community. But when I moved to the Upper Valley, I did feel more accepted by my community. But I did notice that because I was black and living in the Upper Valley, people automatically associated with me with Dartmouth. And it still is really awkward to be like, oh, well, I'm not affiliated with Dartmouth. Because as a black person, I just feel that they're, when they do see me and they think I'm affiliated with Dartmouth, that they feel that I'm 
a successful black person. But when I say that I'm not, it almost brings me back to those maybe general stereotypes they have of black people. The narrow definition of Vermonter and Yankee lives on. And according to Robert Vanderbeck, that's because it was continually reinforced and perpetuated over the years, like with recruitment. For example, around the turn of the 20th century, when there was a bunch of out-migration, people leaving their farms. There was lots of discussion about who we could recruit to kind of work on the farms. Vanderbeck says the preferred farmer was of Teutonic origins, German or Scandinavian. And so when you, you, know, you were looking for people to take over abandoned farms, you weren't thinking about trying to recruit the former African-American sharecropper in the U.S. South, but you would wanted, you know, a Swede or Norwegian from Minnesota, for example. In other words, a preference for white farmers over black farmers. Another demographic that the state tried to attract was the second homeowner, but a particular kind of second homeowner. In the 1930s, Vermont's beloved writer and activist Dorothy Canfield Fisher was hired by the Vermont Bureau of Publicity to write an official invitation to potential buyers. And so the the invitation was explicitly directed at, quote, those who teach in schools, colleges, and universities, those who are doctors, lawyers, musicians, writers, artists, in a word, those who can earn their living by a professionally trained use of their brains. And so while not explicitly kind of invoking a notion of whiteness, it was very clear of a kind of a particular type of, of person that the state was systematically trying to recruit. And finally, Robert says the state sent an almost subliminal message when it marketed itself to tourists. When I was based at um, UVM, I spent a lot of time going through um, decades worth of Vermont Life magazine. And he noticed this visual pattern. White faces and and white snow and kind of the white steeples on churches in the so-called white New England village are all kind of packaged together in a way that's made to kind of look and feel kind of natural in a particular way, even though it's clearly not kind of anything natural, but very much a, a kind of cultural construction. So beyond economic forces and immigration streams, what we've had in this state is long-term messaging about what Vermont looks like and who Vermonters are. And it's really important to remember that this goes for white people, too. I think fundamentally what we're missing is the multiculturalism that even exists within that word, white. This is Jude smith Rakelli. She lives in southern Vermont. She's the CEO of a consultancy called Abundant Sun. They do diversity and inclusion training for businesses and nonprofits all over the world, including one recently at VPR. And she wants people to be very wary of making assumptions about who white Vermonters are. I mean, I I did one of our unconscious bias workshops just um, four days ago for uh, one of our clients. And there was this one young man who, you know, would present as you look at him and he looks just like your typical white Vermonter. You know, underneath the surface, he's a Bosnian refugee. Didn't have much to say uh, when everybody else was talking about their childhood experiences growing up in Vermont until he worked with his smaller group of colleagues. And he said, you know, from from zero to 12, he said, you know, oh, I grew up during a war. And um, he said, I spent from three to five living in a basement with no windows. He's white, but he's also Muslim. So that's why I cannot and I will not simplify the answer to the question of why is Vermont so white. That being said, there's misjudging white people 
And then there's flat-out racism. And we're going to end today's episode with a woman who has experienced quite a bit of the latter. Her name is Angela Grenier. The supermarket has become my least favorite place to go. It seems to be the place where people like to touch me. So yes, I am in the grocery store standing in line. There was a gentleman behind me who had clearly put in a hard day's work. His jeans were dirty. His hands were dirty. He was just dirty from head to toe. And he grabbed a handful of my dreadlocks and asked me how it was I got my hair to do that while running his very filthy hands through my very clean hair. (laughs) I feel like when I moved from Wisconsin to New England, it was an awakening of sorts for me. I wasn't aware of my color as much as I I am now. The first day that my daughter and I were in New England, we wanted to see our new town. As we're walking around, we were definitely aware that the neighborhood wasn't happy to see us. And, and within a half an hour, I was spit on and um, also experienced some neighbors who crossed the street to get away from us. The two of us talk about our experiences regularly. My daughter is 26 years old now. She was 14 when we moved. And again, it's been 14 years of her life not really having too many um, racially charged experiences. So when it started to happen to her, it it rocked her world. It, it really rocked her to her core. And it's something that we talk about almost daily. She left New England the day after her high school graduation, vowed never to come back, and has not. find the extended cut from Angela's interview, as well as more from Sharana, Wayne, Olivia, and others at bravelittlestate.org. Their stories were recorded by Rebecca Sinanis. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. Remember that you can submit your own questions about Vermont anytime at bravelittlestate.org. And while you're there, you can vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Lee Rosefair, Poddington Bear, The Rosen Sisters, and Blue Dot Sessions. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from VPR supporters and sustaining members. If you're one of those people, thank you very much. If you're not, and you like this show, consider chipping in a few bucks at vpr.net slash support. I'm Angela Evansy. Until next time, remember to be brave and ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.